Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, this week on the show, I sat down for a conversation with John Kelly, who over the last decade or so has carved out quite a reputation for tackling some of ultra running's gnarliest, often multi-day events, including some he's come up with all on his own. Notably, John is only the 15th person to ever finish the Barkley Marathons, as well as the last to do so, and we get into his run there back in 2017 in detail during this conversation. Most recently, John's been working to build back his leg speed for, quote, shorter, faster stuff, which is, of course, all relative. At the end of last year, he ran a sub 230 marathon and then followed that effort up with a sixth place finish at the Bandera 100K in January. Two performances that I think speak to his versatility on the trails, as well as his remarkable ability to get comfortable with being incredibly uncomfortable, often for long, long periods of time. We talk about some of the mental strategies he uses when he hits a low spot during a race, some of his favorite memories from his time spent living and running in the UK, and a whole lot more. But before I bring John on, I want to remind you guys about our annual Blister Summit, which is now right around the corner. From February 12th through the 16th, we'll be hosting a series of summit events in our hometown of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado, and we've got a bunch of really exciting stuff on tap for it. There'll be plenty of on-snow activities and demo opportunities from industry-leading brands, panel sessions with company founders and professional athletes, nightly gear giveaways, and a whole lot more. For more info on what to expect and how to register, check out the link in the show notes. And finally, if you've been enjoying the conversations I've been having on this show, please do us a favor and leave us a rating or review. Little things like that go a long way in supporting the podcast. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with John. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. All right. So to be honest, when I was doing prep for this interview, I didn't really know where to start. I feel like you've done so much throughout your career that it was hard to kind of like pick one thing to to lead the show with. But there were a few looking back that I think might be like imbued with a bit more meaning, at least from my perspective, that I'm hoping we can talk about uh, in our conversation. But I think in order to get there, we should probably establish a bit of context. So I'll start off the show by asking you about how you found your way into endurance sports in the first place. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a long uh, path to get there. I, I grew up running and, and ran high school cross country and track. Took a solid decade off for the the, the intramural sport circuit, uh, softball and, and flag football and the like. And then I I got back into uh, hiking and backpacking. My wife threw hike. My wife and I threw hiked the John Muir Trail in California, which was just an, an incredible experience and, and really got me back out there and, and got me to rediscover my love of the mountains. And I thought to myself, you, you know, maybe if I run, I, I can see more of these things and the uh, limited amount of time I, I have. And just from there, gradually discovered uh, trail running and that there's these crazy people out here running hundreds of miles uh, at a time through the mountains. And it 
just kind of snowballed. That's funny because I feel like that's exactly how I discovered ultra running was like uh, I was up against time constraints and wanted to see more of the backcountry. So I figured I would just run hikes that I intended to backpack instead. Um, so I feel like we, we share that background, which is nice. Yeah, no, definitely. And it, it lends itself quite well to a, a, a niche within the niche of, of ultra running. Some of these that are farther out in the wilderness require a bit more uh, navigation and, and self-support along the way. I know you dabbled in triathlon for a while, right? Or I guess more than dabbled, you uh, you went to Kona a few times, if I'm not mistaken. There again, it was something that I sounded fun. I, I thought I'd try it out. I was living in just outside of DC at the the time, which has uh, very hot and humid summers, and that's that's not my favorite conditions to uh, to run in. But I, I had just beautiful um, rural farmland uh, west of me to, to ride my bike through. And so I, I had those two things. I figured I'll, I'll try swimming. We'll, we'll see how this goes. And it was, it was a fun experience for a while. It was great to challenge myself with, with something new. I uh, met some great people. I uh, had some great adventures. Uh, I, I went pro for just one race to, for the experience and, and then promptly uh, went full-time to ultras. As that's just uh, where my personal passion is, uh, both in, in terms of the, the races themselves and, and just kind of the, the culture around it aligns better with me personally. What do you think your uh, weakest leg was in the triathlon? Oh, it was swimming. Uh, with, yeah. Without a doubt. It's, uh, I, I assume I still hold the, the record for slowest swim ever in a sub nine hour Ironman. It was for that one race that I, I went pro. I, I immediately got left by myself uh, with the very good swimmers I started the race with. And uh, it, yeah, I think I came out of the water in 117, which at, at the time, uh, one of my friends had a big database of all the, the IM finishes. And he's like, yeah, that, that was the, the slowest by three minutes. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, another question I had for you was about uh, your nickname, Random Forest Runner, which is like the title of your blog as well as your Instagram handle. Um, where did that name come from? Uh, it actually came from one of my, my work colleagues. I've been uh, doing startups for a while now, and, and one of my partners in that uh, came up with the idea to blend what I do at work is, is data science, uh, machine learning, a, a very popular algorithm that's used there is, is the random forest algorithm. Uh, and that, that works well with, with what I love to do outside of work of just running through random forests. So it's a good play on words that I, I really enjoy. Yeah, that's appropriate. Um, okay, let's jump forward a little bit uh, to 2017, um, your infamous run at the Barkley Marathons. Can you kind of set that up for us? Yeah, that had been my, my goal for a while. It, it was uh, there again, that was something that I heard about when I first got back into backpacking. Uh, a lot of the successful people in that race ha had been uh, backpackers uh, to begin with. People like David Horton, uh, Andrew Thompson, who held the speed records on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, it's, it's a race that requires a lot of that navigation and, and self-sustenance and, and dealing with, with tough terrain. Uh, and at the time, it was just kind of, wow, that's that's awesome. Just something I, I could never do. But it, it stuck there in my head, partly because I grew up in absolute middle of nowhere, East Tennessee, literally right across the street from the park 
where the race takes place. So it was it was very personal to me, uh, very meaningful for it to be in those mountains. And so it stuck in my head and, and I, I started running, started doing marathons, started doing triathlons. I, I kept getting better at them. And eventually, again, the idea just kind of grew from, ah, oh, that's, that's a neat idea to well, maybe I could actually do this to, well, no, I, I want to give this a shot. And 2017 was my third attempt at the race. And I had built from a three-loop finish. Uh, the race is five loops. I had finished three my first year, four my second, and was uh, finally able to, to pull off that five-loop finish uh, in 2017, which is uh, actually still the, still the most recent finish uh, of the race. Yeah, I think you were the 15th ever finisher, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, I think that also, it's interesting because that kind of corresponds when the Barkley Marathons were like very much in the zeitgeist after like the release of the, the Netflix documentary, which I think was in like 2014. Did you kind of see just a huge like influx of interest in that, in that race um, during your first three attempts? Yeah, I was kind of right at the the transition point uh, where the Netflix documentary really kind of took hold and the popularity of the race exploded. Uh, before that, it was very much a, uh, a sort of underground thing with not many people knew about, not, not many people uh, followed. And so I, I was there just as that started ending. Uh, and 2015 was fairly low key. Uh, and then by the time that I'm, I'm finishing in, in 2017, you've got multiple kind of media crews out there, uh, people making documentaries like uh, Ginger Runner's uh, Where Dreams Go to Die uh, film, which uh, is a great YouTube video. Uh, so yeah, it's it's been, it's definitely grown and it's, it's been a delicate and difficult balancing act for the race director, I know, and allowing that that popularity to grow and for the race to have that positive effect on people without ruining the the atmosphere around the race itself or worse putting the sensitive ecological area in danger um, from race participants or people coming and deciding oh hey i want to run the barkley course right what's your relationship with laz like oh it's 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 good uh so known him for uh, quite a while now and uh so it's a very very good relationship of, of mutual respect I, I don't interact with him a, a ton outside of the race but uh yeah, he, he is a a very complex and and intriguing individual so uh and, and very much a case of uh what you see is is sometimes not uh the 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 true nature of of what he's doing or what he's thinking and that's oftentimes uh how he intends it uh but but i I very much appreciate his mindset on on putting out these these challenges where where failure is is real and and really um it's it's likely and one of my my favorite things that that he said is is on barkley the only people uh that uh, don't get the best outcome are the people that finish because they're they're the people that didn't discover their limits. And so I, I love the the races uh, and, and the challenges he's put together that that truly explore that. Do you remember any of like the titles of the books he uh, 
he puts out there on course because I, I from what i remember it's been a while since i watched uh the documentary but like some of the titles were very appropriate to the <laughs> to the conditions i don't remember them off the top of my head but i i do have um the year that i finished i took all of my pages and put them together into this just sort of um little collage that, that I have here on my my wall above my computer, so I, I can I can see a few of the titles. There's there's burnout. Uh, <laughs> it's all in your head. It's okay to feel afraid. The panic zone, unraveled. A larger view of time. Social health. So they're um, yeah they're they're, they're generally uh, quite interesting and, and adept titles. Uh, pe- people send them to him uh, at this point, so uh, he he has a, a large collection uh, to choose from. Yeah, he's got a really good sense of humor. Um, the last question I had about uh, the Barclays was uh, about the beanie and the trash bag. Uh, do you still have the beanie? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, it, we we call those toboggans where I come from, uh, and so I've, I've got that that grocery bag. It's it's pretty much a string at this point, but it's down there with it i feel like you could find those in uh ultra running like hall of fame like un- behind a plaque or something um can you tell me a little bit about like the, the story behind both of those uh for listeners that you know might not be aware yeah so it, it was i was coming up on my last loop and i was really kind of up against the clock and the weather that was coming in over the next 12 hours looked like it could be bad um not not too horrible but it was one of those situations where i knew that i had to move fast to finish and if i wasn't moving fast enough to stay warm then i wasn't moving fast enough to finish and i might as well just drop and and come back to camp you know for for all the race uh get uh, kind of exaggerated in, in terms of the, the dangerousness of it and, and how extreme it is. You're really never very far from a trail and a, a safe way back to camp. And so the weather turned out a bit worse uh, than I expected. And also, I didn't yet have the experience at that point in my career to, to realize that when your body is that depleted, it simply can't regulate its own temperature. So in a situation where I maybe would have otherwise felt fine, when I was 50 plus hours into tramping through mountains in the Tennessee wilderness, my body could not keep itself warm. And so I was uh, going up uh, one of the big climbs and uh, just covered in briars and already had on all of the gear that I'd brought with me for my loop. I was about five hours from the finish at that point. It was raining much more heavily than expected. It was windier than expected. And I was I was pretty cold and was just looking around, hoping that magically something would appear in the briars. And, and then there, there they were. I, I spotted a grocery bag that had got caught on, on one of the, the briars. Uh, poked a little hole in the top and put it on like a poncho and and then found the the beanie or, or the toboggan uh, moments after that. And that was, that was just an absolute godsend uh, for, for the warmth that gave me. And I was able to, to push on and, and finish from there. And I'd say it was 
just the appropriate amount of cold uh, and that the, the, it kept me awake uh, for the finish without uh, putting me in any danger. Yeah. I mean, so iconic uh, now thinking back on it. Uh, how did your life change after that experience? I don't know. That's that's a good question. Not, not something that I've ever directly put a lot of thought into. I don't think that my my life in terms of the things that matter to me or that I focus on really did change. I mean, it didn't affect me with my family. It didn't affect my career trajectory. Uh, it meant that I I had some more followers on, on Twitter and, and Instagram, which, um, okay, I, I didn't really know what to do at that point. I wasn't a heavy social media user. I still don't consider myself a, a heavy social media user. Um, but what it did do was kind of open my eyes to the not only the opportunity but the responsibility that that afforded in having this platform and this voice and this ability to attempt to inspire others uh, to to really take on these types of of big goals and and to not be scared of failure. So I, I would say that's that's the biggest bit has has been just being more active in the community, uh, whether through social media, through my blog, through events out in person. Otherwise, you know, I, I, I picked up some sponsorships from it and I get free shoes. I think that's, uh, <laughs> that's the other real effect from it. Yeah. Were there any kind of like, I guess, like media outlets that reached out for an interview after that, that like you kind of didn't see coming? Oh, my still one of my highlights might remain my, my highlight of my, um, you know, athletic career was, uh, I, I was on sports center. Uh, I went into the studio there in, in DC, not far from where I worked, uh, in DuPont circle, uh, did the interview for that. I, and, and I have the screenshot where they always have the like lineup of what's coming next on the side of the screen. And, and it was like, here I am getting interviewed and it's like, LeBron James is next. But it was just, yeah, it, it was, it was a fun experience. Yeah. I think the more ultra runners we can get on sports center, I think the better, uh, <laughs> in terms of the rise of the sport. Yeah. I know you spent several years in the UK starting in 2019. Um, what prompted the move over there? So that was for my job. Uh, I had uh, helped start a company at, at that point. Uh, was the, the tech co-founder of a small, uh, what was at the time a four-person company. And so I moved over there to build out the team in person, which I think and, and hope will always remain the most ironic thing of my life that I I moved my family across an ocean to build a team in person and then spent most of the time working remotely due to COVID. Um, but that's, that's what I was there for. Uh, so we were in the Southwest outside of Bristol, just South of the, the Welsh border. And so that, again, it was for work, but it also opened up the opportunity for just a load of new and, and different adventures over there. How would you characterize the UK uh, trail running culture compared to, to what we have here in the US? It's so condensed, I guess, is, is the best word. Like the US, we're, we're so geographically spread out and you've got your, your East Coast runners, you've got your Flagstaff people, your Boulder people, your California people. And the, and the UK, like 
pretty much everyone in the country lives within four hours of the Lake District, which is kind of the, the central fell running area where the Bob Graham round and a number of other uh, big classic races and, and challenges are. And so that results in a culture where a pretty much everyone knows everyone everyone uh is taking on a lot of similar challenges and the biggest thing for me the biggest change for me i had always kind of been backpacking background doing things like barkley i'd been kind of a self-sufficient unsupported guy uh, in the, the uk so many of these challenges are traditionally heavily so they're they're essentially community efforts uh, i i kind of thought of myself on some of them as the baton being passed along by, by my support teams and it's just it's great to see some of those things and, and these these people coming together to uh help each other achieve these great challenges how do you think your time over there kind of played into your running career because i feel like from my research like that's when you really kind of took a bite out of the multi-day adventure um, type efforts? There were a few things over there that I really wanted to, to try. And, and foremost among them was the spine race, uh, which actually uh, just finished up a week ago, this year's uh, edition. Uh, Damien Hall broke my, my men's course record on that. Jasmine Paris um, still holds an incredibly impressive uh, overall course record. But that was entirely unique to me. Uh, even uh, having done things like Barkley, the, the spine was a very different experience. Uh, it put me up to challenges that I had never encountered, terrain I had never encountered. Uh, and it was something that, that from there launched me to explore other things. The, the, the race takes place on the Penine Way. Uh, England's first national trail kind of runs the central backbone of the country up to the, the Scottish border. Uh, and so I, I went to take on the, the record or, or the FKT uh, on that trail and uh, broke a 30-year-old a standing record on it only to have my, my pal Damien break that record a week later. And then I came back uh, and, and broke the record um, the following year. And so again, that's that's where I, I think maybe those two things come together in, in terms of the UK scene and, and how it launched me into these multi-days is simply that, again, the concentration of these efforts and the fact that I can go do something like a 260-mile boggy trail and have back-and-forth competition on that and, and getting that done and have a massive amount of people coming out and support me to help me get that done. And so that was exciting. And that really enabled a lot of the the big uh, up to five and a half day long adventures that I had while I was over there. How much do you think like competition plays into uh, your performance on efforts like these? Like how how valuable is having someone like Damien kind of like waiting in the wings? Uh, it's it's immensely valuable both in terms of the competition and simply in benchmarking what's possible. Uh, I have I have always been um, a competitive person. I, I was, uh, you know, I, I would say as a kid, uh, overly competitive to a, a somewhat annoying degree to my brother and and others around me. Um, and while I'm I'm not as as outwardly competitive uh, like that anymore, that that sort of drive is is still inside me, and so. Um, 
having Damien there really did two things for me. Uh, the first, he with the time that he ran, uh, so the record was 65 and a half hours. I ran it in 65. Then he came and ran it in uh, 61 and a half. And with him taking it down that far, that really, uh, I not only had the competitive drive, but I had it in my head. Well, well, wow, it's possible to go sub 60 on that. And so I laid out my schedule. I laid out my my goals uh, in an ambitious way that I otherwise wouldn't have done. I, I wouldn't have even thought that was touchable. And so I ended up going 58 hours and four minutes, which was um that was actually within 10 minutes of, of the schedule that I had laid out beforehand. And so having these sort of competitive um, benchmarks like that, to me, that that's the true value in it is, is helping each other see what's, what's really possible and, and how high uh, we can get it. And, you know, it would be, uh, especially now that I've had it longer than a week, it, it would be thrilling and exciting to see someone come along and break it this year and, and know that I was a part of um, getting the time that fast. Is that kind of the same motivation you have when you approach some of the only known time projects uh, you did over there, such as like the Grand Round and the Wainwrights? So the, the Wainwrights is definitely not an only known time. Um, it's not? So, okay. No. So that, that was first... Uh, so the, the Wainwrights are a set of 214 uh, spots. Uh, they're mostly peaks, but really they are spots uh, near the peaks that uh, Alfred Wainwright wrote about. He decided they were his favorite spots in the Lake District. Um, and so Joss, legendary, the biggest name ever in fell fell running, uh, Joss Naylor, uh, first did them in a single effort. Uh, decades ago. And then uh, about, uh, I think it was in 2017, uh, Steve Birkinshaw put a good solid route together, which is it's highly complex, linking 214 points where you have complete freestyle. There's no trails. It's just complete freestyle running. Uh, finding the optimal path between those is is huge. And so he did that. He brought it down. Uh, then Paul Cherney brought it down. Then Sabrina Vergi brought it down. I supported her. She supported me. Steve supported me. So again, this whole community effort of pushing these results higher is huge. And so that was um, my last big effort in the UK, really. Uh, the other one, the, the grand round, yeah, that's that's someone that's something no one had done before, and that one to me, that I conceived of that before we we actually made the move over there, and did it shortly after, and it's something that I wanted to build a big adventure and exploration based on my passions. And so we mentioned triathlon early on, uh, how I loved everything except the swimming. The idea behind the Grand Round was that I would take the UK's three big classic fell running rounds, the Paddy Buckley Round in Wales, the Bob Graham Round in England in the Lake District, and the Charlie Ramsey Round in Scotland. I would do them all back to back to back, and I would ride my bike in between them. And so that took me uh, five and a half days. No one had done it before. Uh, It was, again, had enormous support along the way. 
what that one was about. Uh, I guess you could say it was it shared that theme of exploring what's possible. But if there was a takeaway from that, it, it would just be to you know do what you love. Uh, if if there's not something uh, that really aligns fully with your passions as far as a race or a set adventure, just just make it yourself and and go do it. That's that's what it's about is is enjoying these things and pushing yourself in a personally meaningful way. The grand round had like 400 miles of cycling within it, right? Yeah, yeah, about about that. It was um I think around 180 between Wales, well between the Welsh round and the English round and then 220 between the English and the Scottish round. How did you manage uh, all that cycling when you're like super sleep deprived? Because that would be the first thing I would be worried about. Uh, it was rough. And so I was successful on my second attempt on this. And the first attempt, really the reason that I I stopped is that I had set myself an overly ambitious schedule. Again, no one had done this before. I really had no benchmark to go off of. Um, I did the math, I assessed what I was capable of, but, uh, in the end, I, my schedule was, was too ambitious and didn't allow enough time for sleep. And so I got on my bike heading up to the third round and very shortly decided there's no way I can safely do this, uh, cycling 200 miles up narrow, windy Scottish mountain highways with trucks uh, or lorries as they call call them uh whizzing by me and so that that one was stopped uh came back the next year with a uh schedule that allowed for some more sleep i i had a support van uh on on the cycle uh route and so if i did start to feel like i was going to drift off I, I could pull over somewhere and take a quick nap and and that that can mentally refresh you a huge amount um, just to, to get you going uh, again for, for a bit. And the thing that I, I had, I, I had been intimidated by, by biking at, at night. I'd never really done much of that. But really, with, with all the lights and, and everything I, I had on me and my bike and, and my support crew, I, I felt much safer and more visible at, at night than, than I did in the daytime. Is managing sleep deprivation something that you can like train? Like, is it a muscle that grows stronger or is it kind of just like, this is how I handle not sleeping for X amount of hours? I don't know that you can get better at it per se. I think that you can get better at knowing what's going to happen and how to respond to that and what, um, what actually works best for you. Like, some people respond best to frequent, very short power naps. Some people do best on a few um, longer sleeps. Understanding your body's own natural rhythms, it's, it's chronotype. Like I, I know what periods of the day I am going to feel drowsy. And, you know, from experience, I know, hey, if I can just maybe take some caffeine right before this, before it happens and, and push through it, once I get on the other side of this time period, I'll be fine rather than hitting it and thinking, wow, where did this come from? I don't know what to do. I've got to sleep. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Um, another question I had for you about these like super long multi-day efforts is about the recovery side. Because uh, I've heard you say that like the mental recovery is actually a lot more arduous than than letting your like physical self recover. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's in, I would say, a direct sense and just in terms of the brain fog and the fatigue and, and mentally, you know, getting up and, and feeling like you've been hit by a train. Uh, that's that's rough to recover from that sleep deprivation, uh, from the amount of focus you put in over multiple days. Uh, and, and that's especially true for, for most of us where we don't have the luxury of you know, taking that amount of time out from our life to do the event and then taking that amount of time out from our life again to recover. Uh, most of us have to get back to a job, get back to our family. Uh, and, and so we can't just, you know, lie in bed for, for three days straight. The other piece of that is is the mental processing uh, of it. Uh, I guess the, the more indirect recovery. It, it's quite obvious uh, when you finish these things and, and you and towards the end of them, what what the cost is in terms of the fatigue you're feeling, that time you've taken out of your life, uh, maybe away from your family, and, and going through that and really balancing out, you, you know, what, what did I learn from this? What did I take away? How did I improve? Was it all worth it? And and so far for me, the, the answer um, has, has been yes. Uh, from what I've, I've taken away and, and how I've grown and improved. But the, uh, sometimes it, it can take a, a few days uh, to, to really get there in the mental processing. Do you think your blog serves as a way for you to kind of like expedite that recovery by like processing these uh, huge accomplishments? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's something that, you know, my, my blog posts, my race reports, or I guess at this point, maybe adventure reports is a more apt term uh, for some of the things I do. Uh, those are there and, and they're public for, for people to, to read and, and hopefully enjoy and, and take some inspiration from. Um, but I write them kind of thinking about processing those thoughts myself and also thinking about future me as a target audience when I read back through these and I want to be able to review the things that I learned or recapture some of those memories that I had. And so they they can get lengthy. Uh, they're, they're not edited down. Uh, they're, they're not, uh, you know, word count uh, or typical <laughs> reader-friendly lengths. Uh, and and that's okay. Um, but again, I, I hope that the people, even if it's in reading in parts or reading the the TLDR at the top, uh, can take away from that. It's funny reading them because like what you've done is mind boggling. But once I'm finished kind of reading your thoughts, I'm like, wow, this is actually like super rational. And like this makes a lot of sense. And then I kind of have to like check myself and be like, this guy just ran like you know hundreds of miles. Like this is a an absurd premise. But uh, you have a uh, you do a really good job of like making it make sense. Well, thank you. That's uh, that, that that means a lot here. All right. So you're back in the U.S. now, correct? Yes, I am uh, up in the uh, in in Boone, North Carolina. So uh, sitting on on top of the East Coast, way up at three thousand feet. <laughs> What have you been uh, focusing on since you've been uh, back in the States? 
Uh, getting moved in, settled in, uh, repairing uh, our house so that it doesn't rot and fall apart and we have heat and, and whatnot. Um, but, but running wise, um, so I've, I've had a lot of fun exploring the, the new area around me, getting to know the trails, uh, the terrain, some of the, the challenges that I'll take on in the future. I also took a bit of a, a recovery period to enable me to, well, a, have time and space for that move-in process. Um, and also, I, I had a lot of big things uh, recently between the Wainwrights. Uh, I, I had Hard Rock this year. So actually, pretty much as soon as we moved back, we headed out to Colorado for a few weeks uh, for, for Hard Rock. Um, I came back from that and, and had a bit of a, a recovery period uh, as, as these things can kind of uh, these long multi-day efforts can have a, a longer term recovery period. And if you're not careful, those can start to accumulate. Uh, and, and I wanted a, a bit of a refresh uh, to wipe those out and also uh, to go back and, and work on my speed a, a bit, to be honest. There's there's a perception that for doing the sorts of things I do, that the speed doesn't matter. You've just got to be able to, you know, keep going and, and be mentally tough or, or something like that but it, you know the reality is is you need speed if you want to do them well and if you want to have a top end that's high enough to where you're not redlining for for two or three days straight so i i did a half marathon then i did a marathon and then most recently i, I did bandera uh, 100k down in, in texas and so that was a. Uh, great time to, to revisit uh, what it means to, to run fast, at least uh, in an ultra running context. Uh, and I think will will serve me uh, quite nicely as I, I build back up to my longer challenges. There's a couple of things in there that I want to hit on. Um, the first being, do you have any kind of like rules uh, for when you know, like you're, you're recovered after like a, a long effort? Uh I found that that largely I, I pay attention to that mental aspect. Uh, generally, by the time I feel I'm mentally recovered, my my body is fine and, and ready to go. Um, of course, it's not ready to go out and do a super hard effort. Uh, I have to ease myself back into it. But but really, it's that point at which I'm really kind of getting fidgety and sitting around saying I, I i need to run i want to run if if i'm still sitting there saying oh man i i can't move a step i i have no motivation or drive to to get out there and do it then then no i'm i'm not recovered yet how much is that worked out between uh you and your coach my coach uh david roach he's he's quite big uh, on recovery and i would say that i uh definitely recover uh much more than uh working with him than, than I have in the past. I took a, a full week off after Bandera, uh, which uh, otherwise for, for something like that, I, I might have tried to get back to it after a few days. Um, but, you know, I've, I've made great progress with him and it's been really one of the biggest benefits for me uh, in having a coach as um, time crunched as I am is simply not having to think about that aspect of my training. And at this point, I, I have full trust in him and I've delegated all of that to him. Uh, so if he tells me to, to sit my butt down and, and not run, then, then that's what I do. 
I feel like it, it, it must be uh, quite the project to come up with like a training plan for Tour de Giants or something like that, uh, considering that like there's just not a ton of people that are doing that stuff routinely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's There are very few data points uh, in ultra running in general, uh, even more so for these multi-day efforts. A lot of that, you really have to look at, at things like uh, cycling uh, events, like uh, stage races, uh, cross-country skiing, uh, some of these things that, that do see lengthier uh, events. Um, but when it comes down to it, a lot of the aspects are are really the same. And, and people ask me sometimes, you know, what are you training for? And, and the answer at this point really is, I, I like that's just not my mindset. I, I'm I'm keeping myself as fit as possible uh, over the course of the entire year, and then when I have my uh, uh, an event coming up, I, I might hone that fitness uh, for a, that specific event. I, I might add in more hills, or I might add in more speed work, or. Uh, more long runs, more aerobic work, uh, where again, essentially you're just honing your fitness uh, for that specific event. Like, you know, taking a vehicle with a big engine and swapping out the tires on it based on the terrain you'll be driving over. Right. How has your body like kind of responded to um, the like your intention to rebuild some leg speed? I mean, you ran a 226 at CIM, which is very fast by most standards. Uh, did it kind of take a while for, for your legs to come back after? Well, I don't know if you were doing a ton of speed work prior to that, but uh, I'm just impressed by the the variability in, in, in what you can do. So I guess my question is more of like, how like how much grace did you grant your body um, preparing for like faster road stuff? I, I had to grant it quite a bit. Um, my, my original goal for CIM was to go in, in the low 220s. Uh, which I know that doesn't sound like a big difference, but once you reach a certain point, minutes are are huge in the marathon. Like I'm, uh, I'm, I guess around nine minutes off of an Olympic trial qualifying time, and and some people might see that and say, oh, well, only nine minutes, so you should go do that, and that that's huge. That that is a massive chasm uh, to go from my time down to a, a two eighteen, and. A lot of that uh, kind of grace uh, I had to grant my body and, and listen to my body um, was due to those things that, that I mentioned earlier with just life. Uh, I had a lot going on in terms of the move, in terms of my job, uh, in terms of uh, my kids. I, I don't know if it's because we're in a different area or what it is, but I swear there's been like one week since October where no one in my house has been sick. And so I was constantly having my training disrupted by stomach bugs or, or coughs or, or whatever. Uh, and, and so I, I had to account for that. And that's, again, something where my goals are, uh, I try to keep them in the context of the constraints I have. And so I might say to myself, yeah, under perfect conditions, if I trained perfectly and everything went well, I could run a sub-220 marathon, but like that's that's not reality. That That's not life, and, and that's fine. And and given what I had, uh, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm, I'm thrilled with my time and, and what I was able to accomplish. 
Do you think you've always been able to be like really honest with yourself when it comes to like reevaluating your goals or did that take some practice? I, I think so. Uh, possibly overly so. I, I've always been a very ambitious person, but I've also always been a very pragmatic and realistic person. And so for some of these goals, um, Barkley, again, I was very driven by that personal meaning attached to it. And I was, I was just going to go for it, whether I, I thought I could or not. Some of the other things I, I've done the past few years, um, that's again, where I, I feel like for, for me, uh, David is a, a perfect match as a coach because he's a great foil to my own mindset. He is one of the most relentlessly and unequivocally optimistic people on earth. And so, uh, you know, for me, I, I didn't need the sort of person that is going to, to be tough on me and, and, you know, tell me, I, well, that, that, that workout was that workout sucked or, you, you know, maybe you shouldn't be going for this. I, I do that enough myself. Uh, and, and so having someone uh, on my sideline, seeing my training, seeing my results, who has that broader context and can genuinely say, no, John, I, th- I think you can do this. You can definitely do this. It's possible for you. Uh, that's that's been huge and has really been a, a big part of uh, you know what I've been able to do on the Penine Way and the Wainwrights and other things the past few years. Do you and David uh, have a plan ready for twenty twenty three in terms of of goals you have? Yeah, we're some of that is is a bit um, up in the air still. Uh, you know, if if I managed to pull off a golden ticket at western states then that would have been on the schedule uh, I, uh or sorry a golden ticket at bandera for western states uh i i didn't do that uh, i didn't get into the hard rock lottery uh there are still uh, a couple of other races where i'm awaiting kind of my my entry status uh and then there are also just other conditions you know i i Thinking of a, a few adventures I want to go on in the Sierra Nevada, for example, and the Sierra Nevada currently has one of the biggest snowpacks it has ever had, and so that that could definitely uh, affect any summer plans there. So, um, kind of taking it one thing at a time right now, and and have a a few different options for various points in the year, depending on those outcomes and just how my body feels and, and responds. Yeah, I'm in San Francisco and uh, the Sierra Nevada is kind of like my home range, although it's, you know, five to six hours away. But I've been paying close attention to the levels of snow up there. And it looks like, uh, yeah, a a lot of the projects we might have this summer uh, will be very white and snowy, unfortunately. So kind of bring this full circle. uh, I'm curious myself, like, do you have any desire to attempt an FKT at like a, a long trail? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I won't be shy about the fact that the, the AT has always been kind of my holy grail of, of FKTs. But there again, life. Like, you know, I have a demanding job. I have a family. Uh, even running that in record speed uh, requires taking a month and a half off from that life. And so hopefully one day I, I can get to that point where it's possible uh, and, and maybe pursue some of the 
uh, other ideas I have in, in that area, duration of challenge as well. But right at this moment, it's it's simply not possible for me. All right. Before I get out of here, uh, I want to ask you a football-related question because uh, I know you're a big Cincinnati Bengals fan. Any uh, any predictions? All the way. They're taking it this year. It's all, uh, it, you know, one reason I, I've, uh, well, a small reason, but a reason I started focusing so much on my, my individual uh, athletic pursuits was my team sports have always been awful. Cincinnati Bengals fan, Texas Rangers fan, uh, NC State University fan, uh, O for everything on, on championships. Although NC State has won two straight uh, women's cross country championships now. Um, but anyway, most of my life that has taught me to never be optimistic on my sports teams and, and to always kind of be a, a skeptic on, on that. But I, I just, I feel like this is it. It's, it's the year it, it's going to happen. It, it's not only, um, not only am I a lifelong Bengals fan, but T Higgins went to my high school. And so, uh, it's, yeah, it, everything's aligned. Well, maybe they'll meet my Niners in the Super Bowl. <laughs> we'll we'll see. The, the uh San Francisco, the, the Giants were were one of the uh the teams that that crushed my dreams about a decade ago when the Rangers finally made it to the World Series. But uh Oh yeah, I remember that. The the Bengals are hot. They are hot. All right, John. Uh this has been a lot of fun. Um thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks very much. Enjoyed it. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to John for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.